On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Hi everybody, Jenny Anchando here with another Second Shot Sit-Down for Second Shot. And my gosh, this is one that when you hear about the story, it's going to ring a bell. And some of you have probably followed the story extensively of India Oxenberg. You know, she is the executive producer of Seduced. Uh, we saw it on Stars. it's on Hulu, it's on Amazon Prime. She's also the author of Still Learning. And both of them are really focused on how she was lured into the Nexium cult and how she essentially in some ways became almost a slave or property to Nexium founder Keith Raniere. India is the daughter of actress Catherine Oxenberg. She's the granddaughter to Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. Comes from a very known, known family um, and now she is a writer and a producer and she's here to share how she got a second shot at life after escaping this cult. Again, a cult led by Keith Raniere, who is now a felon, a convicted sex trafficker, was sentenced to 120 years in prison. And she's here now to share her story and how all of this happened. India, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I Pleasure. tell you what, I had followed your story in the news, like so many had, you know, not necessarily just yours, but the Nexium story. And then when Seduce came out, I thought I've got to learn more from your perspective. And I found that I learned so much about the way that the brain works, the way that persuasion works, the way that, um, gosh, parent-child relationships works. It, it's really a remarkable, remarkable documentary. So thank you for you know pouring everything you had into that. I want to start you. off. Yeah, oh, I can imagine it was like, uh, I can imagine that was just sort of a, pulled your whole soul out to create that. Most definitely. I would like to start off for the people who are saying, you know, well, she went in and joined this thing. Um, can you explain how it happened that you, from from a you know great background and, and upbringing and you know coming from a family with love, were able to be lured into something like this? Because it, it's not what it seems at all. That's correct. And actually, in more cases than not. I'd say that people don't just join cults. Mm. I think they join what they think is an actual legitimate group or community or, you know, sense of guidance. Like most things, we don't go looking for problems or looking for traumatic experiences. In general, I think people are well-intentioned and they just maybe get led in the wrong direction. And that was what was the case for me in Nexium? I thought that this was a self-help group. I thought that this was going to be a program that was going to help my mother and I to have a better relationship, but also to learn skills that I felt like I was missing for the next stage of my life. I was 19 years old and I was just leaving university and I was looking for structure and guidance and I, I really wanted something that was going to be mine and that was going to fit my personality and also the, my views on the world were so 
new then. And so I was really, I was really susceptible and I was very vulnerable at that time in my life because I was in a transition zone. And that is also quite frequently the case for most people who get taken by high control groups is they're in a time of transition. So this could literally happen to anybody depending on where they are at in their life. Yeah, and yeah. we saw the story play out. I mean, it's almost like, you know, your mom was the one who who invited you to go to this group thinking this would be beneficial for you. It was about leadership. I mean, if, if I would have read the instructions for Nexium, I would have thought this is something that I, Jenny, want to join as well. They're talking about, um, you know, professional development, personal development, improving your relationships, uh, mm -hmm. your drive, your grit, all of these things that the high achievers would perhaps look for. Um, so explain sort of what the what the marketing was that made you think, well, yeah, I would love to join this. Right, and that is actually a lot of what we focused on in the beginning of Seduced in the series is just kind of giving people a real experience of that sales pitch. That consumer front was so enticing for many people and for the very reasons that you said. It was about personal growth. It was about humanity. It was about learning about yourself and all of those things were values of mine and my mother's too so when she invited me to go to the intro presentation with her we were both kind of like well should we go should we not go and it was so wild to me to look at my life in retrospect and think just how significant that moment of saying yes to the intro presentation was because after that I took their first course, which was ESP, and that was kind of their consumer front product, which was this personal growth course. And it was a number of courses. Nexium is the overarching parent company, and then underneath it was a bunch of other sub-companies that were all pretty much formulated by Keith. And um, it was not what we thought. I mean, and that's yeah, an understatement, yeah. but it really was presented and packaged in a way that there were people in there that were pretty notable. And I was 19, like I said, and I was looking around a room of seemingly successful adults. And I was with my mother and we had, you know, done other personal growth things together that this wasn't super unusual. There were no real immediate red flags at the intro presentation. It wasn't until we got into the actual course curriculum that my mom started to notice things that made her uncomfortable. And we go into that and quite in depth in the series. Yeah, so so and let's talk about some of the, you know, when you see somebody who's already successful and they're already in it. So we're talking about like the Seagram's heiresses, right? So these women of major wealth, they're a part of it. Allison Mack, the Smallville actress, she was she a part of it at the time? I mean, who were they putting out there as sort of their front people? Well, what they did in the intro presentation that my mom and I went to was it was kind of like a how do I say it was a sales pitch, but it was an interactive sales pitch. And they also had already existing coaches who were there giving testimonials that were incredibly enthusiastic and felt very genuine, but also like, what is this thing that these people have that they're so into? So there was enough of a vague, <laughs> you know, take, take away at the end of the course that I thought, oh my God, maybe this is for me. Maybe this is the thing that I need. And that was all done strategically. And that's one of the other red flags that we were able to analyze in retrospect that we didn't see at the time, which was this kind of over enthusiasm of 
this is the thing that's going to change your life. And I think if there's anybody out there that is selling you that pitch, be wary. Be wary. You know, like question it. There is no magic pill. That's not how the world works. And this was just one of those promises that felt very kind of like exactly what I thought I needed at the time. Yeah, well, yeah. every 19-year-old, right? Aren't we all at 19 sort of like trying, trying to find something? How does it go, India, from self-help group to sex slave? And I hope I'm not overstepping by saying sex slave. You can give me the right terminology. I mean, the ter- I mean, although, yes, the term is very hard for me to even talk about now, it is it is what it was and there was a servitude and there was a nefarious nature to all of what was in DOS and I think those are two separate things so there's um, ESP which was the course that I took there's Nexium and then there was a subset of DOS and that didn't happen all at once I mean we're talking about a five-year period of grooming that I experienced that I was unaware of at the time so a 19-year-old comes in, starts taking these courses very innocently, starts meeting a community of seemingly like-minded people, and slowly but surely what I didn't realize was I was being led in a direction that was not the direction that I came into this group for. Uh-huh. And that had to do with DOS, and that was the secret sorority that Allison Mack recruited me into. Um, at the time, I believed that it was a women's empowerment group. I wanted that. I was looking for that kind of guidance and structure as well. And I was feeling kind of aimless and desperate at that time in my life. I wasn't growing in the Nexium format. All of that, unbeknownst to me, was also strategic. They were stat- They were stopping the growth so that when they were, when Alison Mack presented DOS to me, it was like, oh, wow, maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is the thing that I need to go wholeheartedly in. And so I like to make sure that that is really clear, that these things do not happen overnight. This is not something that someone would just jump right into. This There's a process of grooming and indoctrination that did take place and does take place not only in Nexium, but in other forms of human trafficking and also abusive relationships in general. I mean, that's one thing that I've been able to talk about since leaving is just the similarities between a high control group and then maybe an abusive or toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We've, we've done numerous interviews on the, on this topic, on the topic of sex trafficking, and it, it, it doesn't always look like what you think it's going to look like. For yeah. example, this instance. Do you think, when, when you think about Allison Mack or, or people like her who are in her position, do you think they were trafficked too? Do you think they were victims first and then recruiting? Or how would you characterize the role that that, that level played? It's, it's such a tough question because, as we all know, the line, I mean, as we all know now, since we've gone through this trial, the line between victim and perpetrator was determined by the government. And that was very clear based on a lot of evidence and other people's testimonials and whatnot. So thank God that that decision did not have to lie on us and that that was taken over by them. And... The truth is, 
I think anybody who interacted with Keith Raniere was ultimately a victim because he took whatever he could from the people whom he interacted with. I do consider what Alison Mack did to be incredibly cruel and crimes against people like myself and other people who I really care about. And she's going to have to face those charges that she's been, she's been given. And, and it's a sad thing because there's still people who are very loyal to Keith and they just do not see how their life is being still controlled by this man, that this is not helpful to them. This hurts them. Well, let's talk about, you, you You mentioned, and I think that was such an important note, that this didn't happen overnight. You didn't show up at one meeting and all of a sudden you are, you know, sort of like at Keith Ranieri's doorstep doing his every wish. This was a long process. But during that process, your mom made some efforts to try to, you know, intervene or to try to try to connect with you. And my, my heart just like went out to her because you're thinking, Oh my gosh, every parent in America is thinking they've been in a place, probably not like this, but a place where they're trying to get through to their kids. Like, please listen, or you know, you don't want to say too much because you don't want to scare them off and then they'll cut you off. But you also don't want to say too little and have something horrible happen. Can you explain the dynamic where you're, you and your mom were in touch, but, but she really didn't have any uh, power over your decisions? I mean, that was one of the more difficult times for us and that was so hard it was about eight nine months that we didn't speak to each other and that was really unusual like I've always been very close with my family and I felt very estranged from them and that was all because of Nexium. and they were really working hard to pit us against each other and to make my mom into the enemy. They were telling me she's a psychopath. She's trying to hurt you. She's trying to destroy this company and, and this community. And so I felt an enormous amount of pressure because I believed these people and I trusted these people for years thinking that they were actually my friends. And the truth, I mean, the truth is they were not, and they were actively hurting me and getting me to do things that were not good for me or other people. Um, I mean, back to your point, I think anyone can relate to, although it is sad, that sense of hopelessness and helplessness in trying to communicate to a loved one. And it feels like you're speaking two different languages. And I know that my mom and I both experienced that at many different times. I think, I mean... I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it's so hard to say, like, what do you do in that kind of situation? How do you protect your loved one? I mean, these are all things that my mother had to figure out on the fly and she did everything she could to not go to the media and the media was the last resort. And so I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's for, for those who didn't see it play out. And I know so many people did, you know, Catherine Oxenberg, you guys, I mean, she, went while India was in a part of Nexium spoke out publicly basically saying and correct me if the, if the storyline is wrong that hey my daughter's a part of a cult and she needs help these people need help these women need help she spoke out publicly knowing the great risk like knowing she could risk never speaking to you again but she, but I'm guessing she was so desperate at that point to get through to you or to get through to somebody that she was willing to do whatever it took she was, and I just did not understand that at the time. And I mean, it makes me emotional now. It's so, it's so hard to even just like put myself back into that mindset. But I really 
didn't understand the things that my mom knew and the things that my mom knew about Keith and about Nexium and and the history of predatory behavior that he he has and has done for years. And all of these things were hidden from me. They were all kind of concealed and distorted within the community. So it took me a long time after leaving Nexium to reconcile the truths with myself and to come to terms with what had just happened to me for the last seven years. I mean, nearly almost all of my 20s. Right. So let's talk about that grooming process. Really, what what comes in? You know, everybody's coming in and they're trying to get into this leadership group, and then they're they're rising through the ranks, and then they're sort of not allowed to rise up, but they're offered this exclusive group. So then you join the exclusive group. It's a women's group, you know, which is promoted to us from the time we're little girls. Of course, she wants to join this women's group. Then you're actually moving, physically moving to New York to be closer to him. Is that when everything really changed? And can you describe what that life was like with regard to? restricted eating and restricted sleeping and and having to give up all your time to this group? Yes. Once again, that didn't happen overnight either. I mean, I was instructed by Allison Mack to move to Albany. That instruction came through Keith. That I wasn't aware of. And so all of these things are happening around me while, like what you said, I'm thinking that I am just joining a woman's group and that this is going to be the structure that I've been missing. Oh, are we frozen? I don't know. You look okay to me. Can you, are, oh, can you see me okay? okay? Yeah. Yeah, you're okay. See, Go ahead and keep going. It froze, but we're, it's still recording, so yes. we're okay. Um, and so I end up leaving everything that I had in Los Angeles, relocating, really not by choice, by instruction. And my life did change dramatically. It, it went from, you know, living a life of ESP to living a life of DOS. And really, it was quite, it had all my, it's like, I'm having a hard time explaining it today. But basically, I was living a double life. And it, one life I was not allowed to talk about, only to Allison exclusively. And I had to keep everything hidden and I felt very fragmented and really distracted. And then slowly she started to implement more practices, whether it was daily check-ins, then it went increasingly more to restricted food where I then had to ask permission for my calories to eat. All of these things I now know are very common tools in mind control practices, in manipulation in general. That I didn't realize at the time, I was being told the opposite, that these were things that were going to help me build discipline, that these were things that were going to help me achieve a stronger sense of self. All of these kinds of words that you use in personal growth were being used against us. And then how did it transition from the the food restriction and your sleep deprivation, sort of, you're sort of working for them, to then the the really scary parts, which are the, the branding? and the, you know, being convinced to show provocative photos or sex acts? Well, you have to remember that we are also collateralized. So right. none of those things. That. That's right. That's right. So there, there was collateral, which is actually just blackmail, which was information that we gave to them as a way to pledge our loyalty initially when we signed in to DOS, when we agreed to DOS. We were given, we, we didn't know it was, DOS. I mean, we didn't call it DOS at the time. They called it the vow actually. And so that 
collateral continued to compound and it was required that we give those damaging images and actually a lot of fake information about ourselves. And that was, I mean, it's really hard. It's really hard to go back there because I think in a lot of ways, the collateral is the only reason why we stayed. And that's because most of the women who were recruited were empathetic, good women who wanted to do better in their lives. And the collateral that we gave, whether it was fake or not, was about people who we cared about and that we loved. And the option to say no to something like a cauterizing pen was not an option for us anymore. And because that meant that we would be giving up all of this damaging information about ourselves and the people and things that we cared about most. So our right to say no to anything was not there anymore. I can I imagine that's can hard to go go back to that. I, I so sincerely appreciate you doing so just, just because it, it helps to explain for the people who are still like, how can this happen? To explain how this happens in, in America, you know, because it's, it's confusing for people. Um, let, let's talk about... The, that, that's why we did this docu-series the way that we did was so that it could show that this is a systematic process and that this isn't just something that happens overnight like we've said. Now you, we saw this play out in the national headlines. Where were you in that point in time emotionally and then also just physically when, when the arrests are happening and, and the, really the work of your mother is kind of coming to a head? I was in New York City at the time when the arrests were happening. And I was working in a, a cafe in the East Village. And I think I was just in shock. Like my life was falling apart or what I believed was my life was falling apart around me. And I was really scared and I felt very alone at that time. And I didn't know who to trust. And I was just beginning to kind of feel like I could have some autonomy over my life, even though I was still sort of in DOS, if you will. I was not completely out, but I was living in New York and I was trying to create distance for myself, which was somewhat instinctual, uh, not not super consciously separating myself from the group, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, at that point, I was just kind of trying to hold on because it was so scary. I didn't know if I was going to be arrested. I didn't know what was really the extent of the charges that we were dealing with. This was all new information to me that I had a kind of tried to ignore. And it was in the news. And I was being chased around the East Village by paparazzi, which was really scary. And there came a point in that summer after... Um, Nancy Salzman, Clara Bronfman, and a couple of the other uh, defendants were arrested, that I began to reconnect with my mom. And we had our first mediation, and it was like we were speaking different languages. Mm. And just slowly but surely, the conversation started to open and expand. And I worked with a woman who is a deprogrammer and she helped me tremendously to try and re-engage my critical thinking so that I could actually just think about what had happened for myself for the first time in many years. And so I really, I'm just so grateful that I had those opportunities to one, have a family 
that was loving and ready to accept me back into their lives. And two, to have the support because coming out of a group like this is very difficult, not only for me, but for anybody who comes out of a high control group or any kind of traumatic experience. You go through a lot and you go through a lot that you are not prepared for. Yeah, you know, Indy, something that I kept thinking about as I was watching the the docu-series was how, honestly, how quickly you came out with that, how, how quickly you were able to sort of retell your story. It wasn't like this happened three decades ago. Um, no. You know, so, so what, what was that like putting together the docuseries having just, I mean, it sounds like pretty freshly reconnected with your family and, and, your, and your roots. It was hard. I mean, I was very raw. And I, I mean, I'm, I don't like to, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't like to sugarcoat anything. I still have really difficult days and I am still healing and I'm still processing things, but I am just so so happy to have distance from all of that at this point in my life and just to be able to have a, a good fun normal day is amazing yeah. <laughs> but um I it was hard I think what helped me the most initially was being able to write because there were so many things I was physically incapable of speaking about for a while and so writing was private and it was intimate and it was safe and so I just kind of started to put it all out on paper <laughs> And then from there, when I was approached to do Seduced, it was really interesting because I wasn't that excited to tell my story. I kind of just wanted to run away to the mountains. I can understand just, that. Yeah. I wanted to just disappear and be like, change my name. I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to deal with this. But then I, uh, I lost my home, uh, my family as well, in the Woolsey fires in 2018. And after that, I, I relocated to Colorado for a couple months, and that's really where I began to unpack a lot of what was going on with me as I was a cooperating witness for the FBI for nine months. So my life really became about figuring out what had happened to me, and the, and the documentary presented itself at that time, and it was really... It was really something that was hard to pass up because it was a project that was made by women that was focusing on women's stories and that was going to unpack coercion. So I thought, well, there might not be a better opportunity than this. Like it, it kind of just combined all of the things that I cared about and that I was interested in already. It just happened to be putting it out there in the real world. And so that's not something that you just take lightly like that's no. a big deal there's no going back after that and I I realized at that point that I was either gonna have to just go all in on this and set the record straight for myself and move through it and out or I was gonna be hiding from this for the rest of my life with shame and I just didn't want to live like that well, it's a, it's a beautiful body of work. I found it to be incredibly informative and um, enlightening, and I, I hate that so many people had to go through this. I mean, but, but, but it's, it's a reality that we have to be aware of that, that this has happened in our country and that, that people are, you know, sort of succumb to this coercion or forced into this coercion all the time. Uh, let's this listen this shows about second shot. Like I said at the beginning, we want to talk about how you have taken this awful wretched experience and now you are and I like you know I don't want to paint a story that's not true but life is better now right you are oh, engaged huge. you are you know have a great relationship with your mom can you talk a little bit about how you came to that place and how life is now 
yeah, I mean, I have a life that <laughs> you're gonna make me cry. Oh. But, uh, I I have a life that I could not have imagined oh. a couple oh. years ago, and I. I mean, I owe a lot of that to my mom. And my mom was the person who saw the potential for my life that I couldn't see while I was there. And so I just really feel very inspired to continue to work with other people who have had similar experiences, whether it's from trauma or sexual abuse or that people who are in cults or high control groups. So I, I'm working with my mom. We have a foundation, the Catherine Oxenberg Foundation, to make sure that there's resources available for people because I owe a lot of my own recovery and insights to therapy and deprogramming and working with other therapeutic mediums that have helped me unpack a lot of that. So I want to make sure that that's available for others. And also just an enormous amount of gratitude for my life because I just did not have a sense of purpose or direction or care for myself while I was there because that those things get stripped from you when you're in a an abusive or toxic environment. And so I think this part of my life has really been about owning who I am, what I care about, and making sure that I prioritize that in my life. And a lot of that has to do with my family and my relationships yeah. and my work, of course. And I, I'm still writing and I'm going to continue to be producing. And I want to make sure that we profile more survivors' stories. So if there's anybody out there who, yeah. who, who you think would be a wonderful, strong, and positive role model for people, those are the types of stories that I want to tell. Oh, Indy, I, I love hearing about your story. And, and I, really quickly, I want to talk about your relationship, too. Did you ever imagine that you would, uh, you know, receive the gift of being able to find a, a you know, a, a regular, normal relationship no. um, <laughs> after what you'd been through? No. I mean, I thought, like, who is going to want me after this? Oh. Like, I felt so, uh, you know, tainted by so many things and also really lacking a lot of trust in human beings. And I think one of the greatest gifts that my fiance Patrick has given to me is just, he, he has no judgment. He's actually a journalism major himself. He's now a oh, chef. Amazing. And, oh, amazing. and so he, he really, he does not associate me with Nexium. He, he sees me as India and that's just like the best. <laughs> what a gift. What Was there any part, can you, anything that we can glean from the the train, you know, I know that you've done a lot of work on yourself, right? This didn't just happen, but but if somebody's in that position where they feel like they've been hurt so deeply by humans that they previously trusted, that they're having a hard time moving on, what advice would you have to them for them? Yeah, those betrayals are very hard to to move through. I think the the advice that I would have for that is that there are good people. There really are. Yeah. And and not to lose that kind of faith because that's something that I think I never wanted to lose because I love people and I am very human oriented, although I am an introvert, I'm I'm very much a people person. And I think that's something that I needed to remember and remind myself that there are good people out there, that this is a small majority that we need to be aware of and you need to be able to identify the red flags and avoid those people and help the people that you love to avoid them too. 
but also if you're in a place where you're really mistrustful or where if you're in a place where you're not able to trust people i think the thing that helped me the most was helping other people oh. like getting yeah. outside of myself enough to remind myself about the goodness of the world india that's a beautiful and place to end i mean that 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 really that advice you guys is so critical for so many of us um people who have trust issues from small to large i think can benefit from that Thank you for your time. Thank you for being so open and for still allowing yourself to be so human and, um, and so raw. It really is a gift. Let everybody know where they can find you and follow along and, and perhaps donate sure. or, or check out your work. Thank you. I, I, um, I'm on Instagram under India Oxenberg. I try to keep it to that because I can't handle much more social media than one, one platform. <laughs> but, um, so you can find me there. Uh, you can also find my book on Audible. It's called Still Learning or uh, Seduced on Stars. And so thank you so much for having me. I hope that everything was clear and good. Yes, that was great. <laughs> Sorry for the technical difficulties oh my in the gosh. beginning. India, it's India. 2021. This is just the way that it is. So thank you so much. And I'll remind everybody, you guys can go to secondshotpodcast.com and you know that these air every Thursday on CW33. And we are going to link up all of those resources for you in the episode notes so that you can connect and research further. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>